Hello and welcome to Cape in Conversation, a vintage books podcast mini-series which celebrates 100 years of the vintage imprint Jonathan Cape by bringing together some of Cape's finest writers. Today we'll be talking with two Booker Prize shortlisted authors, Atessa Moshveg and Rachel Kushner. So brilliant that a conversation with them feels like a roaring motorbike ride and you might need to lie down afterwards too. I'm Shahid Abari, critic, academic and broadcaster and a CAPE author too. I'll be your host for this podcast series as we talk with writers from across the range of generations and genres published by CAPE, including authors Salman Rushdie and Anne Enright, and artist Celia Paul and graphic novelist Alison Bechdel. And we're starting immediately with two great American novelists. Otessa Moshfeg's debut, McGlue, is a feverish monologue by a drunken 19th century sailor. Her neo-noir novel, Eileen, about an alienated young woman working in a boys' detention centre, was shortlisted for the 2016 Man Booker Prize. She's written a short story collection, Homesick for Another World, while her acerbic novel about addiction and isolation, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, was shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize in 2018. Her latest novel, Death in Her Hands, is out in paperback this spring. Rachel Kushner's novel, The Mars Room, tells the story of Romy, a lap dancer turned convict, facing a lifetime in a women's prison. It was shortlisted for the 2018 Man Booker Prize. Her previous novels, Telex from Cuba, about the last days of American expats, and The Flamethrowers, set in 70s New York and Italy, among heady artists, revolutionaries and high-octane motorcycle racers, were both New York Times bestsellers and finalists for the National Book Award. And she's just published a collection of essays called The Hard Crowd. Hello, Atessa and Rachel. Hello. Hello. It's great to have you. We should say that I'm in London and you're both in... California? Yeah. So this is an early start for you. 9am, is that right? That's right. Correct. Are you the conscientious sort of writers who would normally be up by 9am jabbing away at the screen? Or are you resentfully cradling a strong coffee right now? (laughs) I've been up for a couple of hours. My dogs wake me up too early. So I'm always just in a sort of low grade exhaustion. But no, I mean, I love mornings. I love mornings. Rachel, what time did you get up today? Yeah, um, I got up at 7. Um, I normally get up around 7. I mean, this week is a little different for me because I'm kind of in the war room of um, doing book promotion. So to respond, you know, it isn't the kind of um, calm fantasy of the author padding into her office and... Um, you know, making sly observations about the world from her desk and rather <laughs> like me setting up microphones and etc. I don't feel so bad getting you up so early then. It sounds like you're you're in the mix already. I know that um, when Kate were planning this series of writers in conversation and, and we suggested putting you two together, you were very excited, as were we. So, so do you two know each other in, in real life and have you met in person before? Oh, we've done all kinds of things together in person. <laughs> <laughs> we've, uh, we've been friends for a couple of years and it was this awesome, lucky coincidence that Rachel lived in LA and so did I and we had a mutual friend and find, like I'd, I'd been hearing about Rachel and obviously very aware of her work for a long time and um yeah it was it was really cool to meet in person and we were fast friends and I just love her to death 
Yeah, I, I would obviously concur with that. Um, Otessa is my friend. She's somebody whose work I really admired before I met her. And the night we met, I was like, weirdly a little bit nervous. And um, we came home from dinner and my husband said, you were acting kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, um, you know, and I think it's maybe it's like you can recognize, you can feel chemistry with somebody right away. And, but then I thought, oh, I wonder if I botched that by acting weird at dinner. (laughs) And then I, I was uh, doing a short term sort of teaching position where I didn't really have to work. Um, I was just a kind of writer in residence at a local college and they wanted me to set up um, an event. And so I invited uh, Otessa and the writer column Toybean both to read. And then we got to hang out together and I interviewed her on a stage and we've been friends, I would say, ever since. And our, our husbands are friends, and we have other mutual friends, and we watch movies and make jokes and <laughs> um, enjoy each other's company. Definitely. Is that right, Atessa, that Rachel was a complete weirdo when she first met you? But now you're Well, when you meet someone for the first time, you can't really tell if they're acting weird, right? Um, yeah. But I think I was probably acting weird, too. And I don't know, Rachel, you probably didn't notice. <laughs> Maybe we're always <laughs> acting a little bit weird. But I just want to say about Rachel's invitation to come read at her uh, the school where she was teaching is I, I knew I was going to read a short story and I was excited for the event. And I really hadn't picked what story to read. And Rachel suggested the one most disgusting story from my short story collection, <laughs> which I had never read aloud and was curious how it was going to sound. And then I, I I mean, I don't usually feel um, embarrassed to read my work, but it was kind of awkward when I realized that I was reading a story about really disgusting things in front of a like college age child, like which would feel like children. Um, yeah, it was sort of like the first time I, I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, is this not, <laughs> is this really inappropriate? But it wasn't. It totally wasn't. And it was really fun to talk to Rachel afterwards. And I think it was, that was probably the first time that we were kind of joshing each other and joking around. Totally. I didn't know you hadn't read that story before. I can reassure you that my students absolutely adored you. And I think that sort of the possibility of what you can do with feelings that you have inside you, whether it's a vicious mood or a sardonic mood or a lighter mood, um, in terms of them watching a young writer share um, unapologetically, I think it had an effect on people. But do you remember when we did the Q&A afterward, you said something to me about how, maybe I asked a question that others have asked you before, I don't know, like about... um, Mm-hmm. Uh, the abject or revulsion. And you said something like, um, I've often been asked why I delve so joyfully into disgust when I don't seem disgusting at all. And I said, you seem perfectly disgusting to me. And you said, <laughs> so do you, Rachel. <laughs> and I thought, okay, we're going to be friends. It was just so... be friends after that? Yeah, that was a good and, moment. But I, you know what? I didn't know if the audience got it, but um, yeah. Who cares? Sharp. <laughs> Who cares? 
listen, you've already started talking about this, but you know we're celebrating 100 years of Jonathan Cape by talking with some of our finest novelists. And we brought you two together because we intuited that you might have things in common. Um, I was thinking about your interest, not only in disgust, but in anti-heroes, heroines rather, anti-heroines and outsiders, for instance. But I wonder what you think as fellow writers, as readers of each other's work. You obviously have a fellow feeling. Do you recognise something in each other's work that you share in common as well? What do you think, Rachel? I think there's something strange about being a writer in that you don't, you're not really comparing your work to other people's work because you make what you can make. But maybe if I, you know, were pressed to say something about that, I might, and it's it's presumptive to say, but I, I might guess that we both try to maximize our own sensibility. Like freedom is, uh, excuse me, um, fiction is a place where I can be completely myself and ventriloquize feelings that I have into an array of characters. And sometimes people will presume that I'm the character who is the narrator or the one who would be most like me just in biographical sketch, but I'm all the characters. And um, being able to kind of deal with this theater of puppets and I guess just utilize whatever about me is me. And the more novels you write, I feel maybe um, the more unapologetically I'm able to do that. I don't have to curtail myself. And I think that when I look at Otessa's work, it may be some component of that maximized that I'm admiring most. What do you think, Otessa? I think it's such a hard question, but... um... I love Rachel's mistake of saying freedom instead of fiction at the beginning of her answer. And that's sort of like everything, right? I mean, I think that's one thing that Rachel and I connect over is that writing as art making is this other realm where we do feel free. It's, It's a different kind of freedom to be ourselves even when we're not actually speaking from ourselves. And um, I would say that, you know, the one thing that I'm, when I, as a reader, I'm never looking for what I have in common with the writer, because that is sort of the baseline experience. That's the, the air I'm already breathing. I'm looking for what that writer is doing that I could never have thought to do and could have never done um, because I'd never thought to do it. And what, like the thing that I find so fascinating about Rachel is that she's both incredibly logical and linear and so free that she can weave stories that that seem to come from you know the top of the mountain at the and the bottom of the sea at the same time. She's it's her work is transcendent in that way and her ability to move through different worlds and find a voice that can really just give life to the, the, the most human element of experience, no matter who the character is, is something that I find really fascinating and why I love, part of why I love her work. I don't know. I mean, I think that we're, when we, when we talk about, books and and story I think we talk about character and maybe we have a 
sort of Venn diagram overlap of the way that we were interested in engaging with character. And I think that would be something like, as the authors were, I mean, I'll just speak for myself and Rachel can agree or disagree, but as an author, like I'm aware of my character's interiority (laughs) and how they express themselves in accordance with it and in contrast with it. I think that's sort of like what character is, is how a person expresses themselves either deliberately or accidentally. And as an author, you need to know like where all of those decisions, both conscious and unconscious, are coming from. And sort of tracking that in other people's work is is what builds a character into feeling like a, a real person that you know. And that's something that happens like like you mentioned the Mars room like I feel like I know Romy like I can see her like I can see the like chipping paint on her fingernails like I Mm. and I can sort of like I feel like I'm right next to her slightly behind her and like um watching both from her perspective and also looking at her and hearing her and hearing her thoughts so maybe I would just if I can I would um just um, add a quick thought I was having listening to Otessa speak about her work. Um, there is a linear quality to, for me as a reader, to the way that she kind of will trot out a conceit, like in Death in Her Hands, uh, a character who has a very rich internal fantasy life that she's starting to concoct. And then slowly she's seeing signs in the real world that um, reaffirm this fantasy she's having. And the reader is both going along with the fantasy and also seeing that she's um, interpreting her external world to match her internal world. And it's funny and strange and amazing. And I get the feeling as I read it of a kind of freedom that uh, I admire because it's a little bit alien to me in the sense that it seems like she's just building it and building it and building it. And then when I talked to Otessa, she said, I wrote this novel by just letting myself write these pieces and then throw them in a drawer and not looking at each piece until the whole thing was done. Um, She can correct me if that's wrong. And I would love to have an experience like that someday. But the way that I write is to kind of maybe develop a character in similar ways to what she described in terms of like thinking about the internal orientation of the character and what they can and cannot see of how they're claiming to be and present themselves for the reader. But then I always seem to kind of bring in something else and then something else. And it's this multiplicity of voices and the friction between them. And with each novel, I think, oh, I'm going to give myself the gift of this more linear experience of just one character, and then I never do it. Um, and so maybe it's just one difference between us and something that I admire in her work. Isn't, isn't this the thing that you have lots in common, but also things that are quite distinctive? I was thinking about how you're both wild about film in, in your novels, but your interest in films is quite dis- distinct. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about... Um, Otessa, how your narrator in My Year of Rest and Relaxation is obsessed with Whoopi Goldberg films, which is always really hilarious to me because I'm of the same generation that would be obsessed with Whoopi Goldberg films. 
Whereas Rachel, you're more refined, I think. How in, dare you? Um, <laughs> in, well, certainly in the flamethrowers. And I mean, we have to admit that um, uh, Alain Delon and a Marianne Faithful film is slightly more refined than a Whoopi Goldberg film. But you write about actually um, uh, the gal on a motorcycle for your essay collection, as well as it you know, being an influence in um, the flamethrowers. So tell me about the role of film in your work. How, how does it work? Is it an influence? Are you avid film watchers? Are they, do they feature in, in the work? What's the relationship between writing and film? Rachel, maybe you could go first. Yeah, sure. Um, gosh, it's such a great question. I Yeah, I, I love movies. I watch them every night. I would guess that Tess does too. We talk about movies a lot. I don't, I haven't really thought about, you know, what is the difference between our tastes? Because I just am not doing a kind of, it's not a comparative friendship. Sure. But um, there are two things about movies that I particularly love. And one is there's a feeling of death about movies for me, which is that the characters in the film, I often am watching old movies, and the characters in the film seem to kind of rise up in this luminous bubble that's part of a stream of what I would call eternity, meaning outside of time, because it's now in this weird eternal space and the people can live for me again and again, even as they are long lost. And I look in the background of the frames in films at like a perfume bottle on a counter or the clothes that people are wearing or this like louvered closet that a woman opens in a Douglas Sirk film. And I think about that stuff and where it is and it's existing for me in some space that's part of my reality and yet not an objective physical space. So I think it has to do with death drive. The other thing is that um, my mother took me to, I'm older than Otessa, we're kind of almost from different generations. And when I was a kid, we didn't have VHS. And my mother would take me to these very adult movies in the movie theater when I was you know, four and five years old. And later on in revisiting those films, the only things I remembered from them were the most horrible and traumatic uh, scenes, just awful scenes that had somehow shaped me and gotten in there under my skin. And I think that this taught me something about how memory works, that we really remember like the worst and goriest and most terrible detail and not the fun and joyful and light and more simple emotional space that we are exposed to. Like back to my own work, the way that film serves me is various, but one, I think, pretty explicit way it has served me is that if you take a scene from one medium and reproduce it in another, uh, like take a scene from a movie and just rewrite it in a book, it becomes your own and it's mm -hmm. there to be activated. And I see no reason to forego that lever in my work. So I, I, I tried to do something in my novel, The Flamethrowers, in giving a formal description of one of my favorite movies of all time, Wanda by Barbara Loden. And um, it's just fun to kind of roam around in movies, in novels. And it's something I like to do. Sort of just to pick up where Rachel left off, which is like so interesting to hear. Mm. The thing about writing about movies is that movies are sort of their own little worlds that we all have had access to, or we know it's not a shared experience in our life experience. Like we all haven't had the same family. We all haven't had the same upbringing or, you know, we all haven't fallen in love with the same person in exactly the same way, but we can all share 
in these sort of virtual reality film experiences that can be incredibly varied and deep or not deep, but will, um, you know, if they're meaningful to us, it make an impression and those impressions build in associations so that when we're speaking together about them or reading someone writing about them, they can be very evocative as though, you know, we're talking about a different life that you once led. And that's sort of why I love movies because I can live another life. I can go to another planet and and it's like this contained different reality in which there's a language that I understand and sort of learn through watching the film. I mean, I grew up not in a, I would say, a cinephile family, but a, a household where there were hordes of books and VHS tapes. Hordes. And when I, I mean, like, literally, you were tripping on them <laughs> on the way down the stairs. And uh, I spent most of my free time as a kid either practicing piano, which wasn't really free time, or jumping rope in front of the television in the basement watching VHS movies from mostly the 80s and early 90s. Mostly the 80s. So that that's sort of like, yeah, Whoopi Goldberg was a, a very important figure for me and <clears throat> the way that she passed through one one film project to the next. And I also, you know, was watching her do stand-up. You know, she was one of the only women of color that I saw being successful and having a a successfully wrought persona for herself. I mean, her real name is Karen. <laughs> she, and she's not Jewish. I mean, actually, she says that she... I and mean, that's another question, but her name is Whoopi Goldberg. My God, like, that that was like... She is a fiction and, and, and an icon. I love the idea of Whoopi Goldberg as a, a primal scene. I think that totally... Jumping Jack Flash is it, I think, for me. But let me let me get get into a bit more of the details of the nuts and bolts of writing. Um, and I, I wonder if there's a research process for each of you. Uh, Atessa, I was thinking about your novel Eileen, which essentially has a has a mid-century period setting. And of course, Maglou is wildly historical with, it, with its seafaring setting. Is there, a, is there a research process for you when you start writing? There, there always is, yeah. There's always some, uh, there's always a, a running list of source material that I can never get through. And I've found that the research search is sort of more significant than the actual material that I find in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's part of the creative process in connecting the dots in the world that I'm I'm building in the novel. For example, I I just finished a new novel about a medieval fiefdom, you could say, a village. And, you know, not having ever studied the history of the Middle Ages, my first instinct was to order, you know, this is during quarantine, so I couldn't go out to buy them, support your local bookstores, right? (laughs) But I bought like every book that I could find on the Middle Ages, living in a village in the Middle Ages, and, you know, here's history of agrarian culture, and this and that. And then, you know, that led me to buying books about naturopathic medicines and then folklore and witchcraft. And then, you know, other novels that have like, like that 
sort of following the breadcrumbs of where your curiosity leads you is just as important as what I actually read in studying the subject that I'm writing about. And I, I never read all the books. I mean, my interest in research is more like for inspiration rather than historical accuracy. What about you, Rachel? I, I feel exactly as Atessa does about Romy in The Mars Room, that I can see her chipped nail varnish. But also I, I, I can see the penitentiary. I can see life in there. And having read the essay about prison reform in The Hard Crowd, I, I, I have a sense that there was a, a really deep period of research for you for a book like that, just as for, for flame, flamethrowers. Is, is that right? I would say that um, I definitely researched the the long essay that's in The Hard Crowd about prison abolition and Ruth Gil- Ruth Wilson Gilmore, excuse me, who kind of has like the entire history of the black radical tradition of thinkers inside of her and just worlds of knowledge that um, I was, you know, a, a, a good witness to, but poorly equipped to kind of interpolate because that's not my knowledge base. And I spent two years writing that. That was the two years after I published The Mars Room, which isn't really a book that I researched. And strangely, neither did I research the flamethrowers, really. So like, the flamethrowers gave me an occasion to try to reimagine these two particular worlds, New York, the New York art world of the 1970s, which I had witnessed as a child. Um, and also, I had written about contemporary art for a long time and my social life in New York City was comprised pretty much exclusively of artists. So I know a lot of the people who were kind of like the principal voices and characters and personalities that came of ascendance in the 1970s. And I'm quite familiar with their discourse. And I think a big part of what artists do isn't in their work alone, but is manifested in their personalities and the way they kind of activate them in a social space. So it was my homage to just the worlds that I lived in, um, in my personal life. So not drawn from research, but rather something more like experience, but more like witness as experience and not I did and said this. Obviously I wasn't an adult in the seventies, I was a child. But a child can see enough to imagine, you know, what it would have been like to be a young woman in New York in the 70s. And moreover, I was a young woman in New York in the 90s. And um, my friends from that time read the flamethrowers as being about us, like the fashion designer, Rachel Comey. Sorry to drop a name, but I I knew her before she was famous in the early and mid nineties. Um, wow. Her and her old boyfriend Eugene Hoots, who's a in a rock and roll band, and she thought that book was about our life. So I I tend to draw from things that more have, um, I guess, a personal resonance. With the Mars Room, I have, you know, thank goodness for me, not done time in prison as a prisoner, um, but. I am very dedicated to some friends who are serving very long sentences in prison and through some old-fashioned activism that I'm interested in and committed to and do. I'm lucky enough to have mentors who have shared what their life is like with me. And I grew up with some people, unfortunately, 
who went to prison. Mm. So I didn't choose it as a subject as much as I feel like it chose me, but I also feel like understanding something about the way society is divided in California where I live is just part of being a person here and a natural curiosity and one I would have wanted to try to grasp and grapple with whether I was writing a novel about it or not. We're going to run out of time and I've got two questions that I really want to ask you. One thing I was going to ask is what you've been writing and reading in the pandemic and if the pandemic has made a difference to to your writing practice and what you're reading at the moment. Atessa? Well, um, she wrote a novel. I'll just say it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had, I kind of felt like I had to. Death in Her Hands, the publication of Death in Her Hands was delayed. I thought I was going to go on this big tour, and that didn't happen. And I really needed to, I, I needed something, and I knew it didn't exist, so I had to, like, write it. So that's sort of how I dealt with it creatively. I didn't read as enough. I always feel like I haven't read enough. Um, I did not read consistently something always kept interrupting my like reading jags um probably usually like wanting to watch all the movies by a certain filmmaker or something like that um but I think like the I'm coming out of this experience with I want to say a higher standard for myself in terms of what I give my time and energy to because I've become so aware of the clock ticking I mean I th- Rachel's talking about death drive um haven't really heard that expression before but yeah the just how much death there's been and how much uncertainty and death not just from the pandemic but killings and life in general as this thing that um really needs to be fought for it's it's like yeah I feel like I don't want to um I don't want to mess around anymore. Not that I really was, but it's just even more of an intense like need to be focused. And, and at the same time, gosh, I mean, that's like, it, it's also my Achilles heel. Like I, I also do need to let up a bit and, and let things happen. So, so basically I haven't changed at all. <laughs> just a more intense version of what I was a year ago. Rachel? Yeah, I don't know about what to say about that. It's really hard to summarize. Um, I've had different feelings at different moments. I mean, I guess the cliche of the writer is that her life doesn't change that much since she's already in a kind of like controlled and solitary lockdown most of the time. I have this book coming out, I guess, in the UK today and um, in the US on Tuesday. And I'm going to do events to promote it for the next two weeks and then I'm done. And I think that that's new. Um, just maybe that's a kind of boring, pragmatic answer. But I think one now can have a little more control for whatever reason, because in the old world, I would have just done this like endless tour where, oh, now it's coming out in Norway and now it's coming out here. And then they want you to go to Australia and blah, blah, blah. And some people like that. And I've even convinced myself at moments that it was fun, but it was only fun for the kind of most appalling reasons that have to do with having kind of accidentally stepped into the role of the author, which is otherwise pretty alienating and unwholesome space. Um, so the idea of just wrapping it up quickly, like nipping it in the bud and getting back to work sounds great to me. I have mixed feelings about what to say about the pandemic because I, I lost three family members to it. 
Um, I lost a really close friend during it, which was not pandemic related, but the way of managing death or trying to handle death in absentia when we can't hug other people um, and take care of things and try to honor people in person does become incredibly complicated. One last question. It's a hundred years of Cape books uh, and it's a tradition with the Vintage Books podcast to ask our guests about what they're reading at the moment or novels they want to recommend to our listeners. So is there a novel or a book that you're reading at the moment that you want to recommend? Rachel. I actually was just talking last night with my friend Dana Spiota, who's a wonderful novelist, um, who has a new novel coming out this summer called Wayward, because we were asked in this public event we did, oh, what are you reading right now? Both bookish nerds, but neither one of us could answer. And she goes, how about movies? And then we immediately started talking about like every old Paul Newman movie that we love, like (laughs) HUD and Cool Hand Luke and The Hustler. And there's something about reading that's just really private. Hmm. Um, But I have an essay about Marguerite Duras in my new book, The Hard Crowd. And um, she is a writer that I'm always kind of like, feel like I'm talking to and admiring. And she's just such a strange being and I absolutely love her. And her first novel, The Impudent Ones, uh, has just been published in English for the first time. And uh, I'll probably read that. And I love everything Duras does. And whether it's a screenplay or a play or a transcript of an interview that she did that she's then re-edited and turned into a novel or a novel qua novel or a diary. It's all the same thing, like poured from one container to the other. It's just sensibility. Wow. Atessa, I mean, we talked so much about film. You could even suggest a film if you wanted. Um, you know, I thought of a novel and it's, a, it's sort of a more recent novel called Enter the Aardvark by an American writer named Jessica Anthony. It was shared with me um, by... Um, Hollywood person to see if I had a take on how to adapt it into a television series. And I had been meaning to read it because I'd actually met the author several years ago and she had been talking about finishing it. And um, I've never read a book like it. It goes back and forth in time from Victorian England to present day Washington, D.C., which is such a strange just world shifting back and forth but it's and it's about this really deceitful politician wannabe in DC who's obsessed with Ronald Reagan and is a closeted homosexual who receives this aardvark a taxidermied aardvark through the post and it sort of unravels into this mystery it's very much that that is very much like up my alley where it's like very peculiar and specific and intimate, historical and funny, and also contemporary and funny, and then finds this very, very deep intersection. So yeah, that book was just like a wow book. I had to read it twice. Enter the Aardvark. That's a great teaser. Thank you so much. Thank you, Otessa Mushbeg and Rachel Kushner. And thank you for listening to Cape in Conversation on the Vintage Books podcast with me, Shahid Abari. You'll find details of Rachel and Otessa's latest books in the show notes, as well as my book, Dressed, The Secret Life of Clothes, which is part of Cape's non-fiction list. 
If you'd like to learn more about the storied history of Jonathan Cape Publishing, you'll find a great article in the bookseller that tells you just that. And we'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts or get in touch at Vintage Books on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. The Vintage Books podcast is back in two weeks and I'll be back in six weeks talking to our next pair of Cape Writers in Conversation, Salman Rushdie with Katie Kitamura. Goodbye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.